this microphone. I'm familiar with all of that. I've spent on all of these microphones at some point in time or another. That's actually the first thing I do when I get them out of the box is test them by spitting on them. So I'm just playing, Jace. <laughs> I'm messing with you, man. My beard filters it anyway. <laughs> oh, we we uh, have um, books. You don't need them. I mean, you do need them. You don't need them tonight because... Yeah, and if you need one, uh, Jason's got right here on the end of the, just pass it right on down there. You don't need, it is a good, um, it's a good uh, tool. It's a good study tool. Patchel needs one right over there. Everywhere, everywhere, everybody needs one. Just throw them. They're hardback. Just throw them. They'll be fine. <clears throat> and and uh, we, we are in Genesis again, but what we've done, what Jason's done, what Pastor done last week, isn't it awesome? This is totally just random, but I just look down here because I'm up there all the time and I look down here. This is a lot of people believing by faith in the supernatural manifestation of God as a healer. That's, that's awesome. Uh, I'm glad that we keep these two because it'll, it'll be even more awesome whenever you can write on there. Done. Yeah, amen. Done. And, uh, and praying for a miracle turns into testimony about a miracle. What a day. Uh, so we, we started in Genesis, um, the beginning, and uh, Jace did a great job um, condemning all mankind. Thank you for that. But then talking to us about the proto-evangelion. <laughs> Is that right? Is that right? Yes. Yes. Where we, see, where we see God's divine plan for redemption in the very, very beginning of the Bible. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this, I will take any text in the Bible, and I will make a beeline for the cross. And you can do that out of any text in the Bible because this entire word of God is wrapped around this beautiful plan of redemption. And so when we talk about the garden and we talk about Adam and Eve in the beginning and creation and we talk about uh, um, let us let us make man in our own image, there's pe- people there, right? Like, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, they're working out this plan of redemption. And you can't redeem man if there is no man. So we have to create him. We create him for fellowship. And then they fall. And there again, we're not on our heels and we don't have to resort to plan B. We know in the scripture that that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. And the entire purpose for the fall of man was for the redemption of man to show that he loves us. It's a beautiful story. And I heard somebody say, if you can understand the first three chapters of Genesis in its fullness, and you can understand the rest of the scripture. And that's a pretty, it's a pretty um, accurate statement, actually. There's a whole lot about the entirety of the Bible wrapped up in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. So we've gone to the fall of man, the condemnation of man, and then we went from fig leaves to faith. And what a beautiful thing that that was, this that proto-evangelion moment where you see God's intentions through a lamb slain to cover up their nakedness. And there is this, uh, this type and this shadow. We know that with, without the blood, that, the, that life is in the blood. Well, forgiveness is also in the blood, and covering is also through the blood. You, you can't have one without the other. You cannot have salvation without faith in the shed blood of Jesus. You can't walk in righteousness without this imputed righteousness that comes through faith in him. It's, there is no access to the Father outside of that. And so that's a beautiful story in Scripture. And, and then we, we kind of skipped over, and I'm actually going to kind of skip over to the flood. It's pretty significant, though, <laughs> especially for any of you that have children. So let me just go ahead and talk about this for just a minute. Without going to Scripture, it's important to me. And here's why. I've been talking to my kids about this here just recently. Absolute truth is very, very important in the day and time that we live in because relative truth has taken over. Understand the difference? We have absolute truth in the Scripture. If God said it and God breathed it and through the power of the Holy Spirit it was spent on parchment for us, then it's absolute truth. Tonight what we're going to talk about is that God is a covenant keeping God and the, the um, 
immutability of God. And I will explain more, but in essence, it is this. He is unchanging. And the things that he spoke in the very beginning, they have weight and they have just as much power and just as much effectiveness and just as much truth as the day that he spoke them. And then he confirmed his immutability and the promises that we see in the word through a covenant with a man. And Pastor slayed it, I think, two weeks ago. And and he was a little bit, uh, but he's always like that at the end of it. Because everything is so rich, you just want to keep going. He's like, ah, and I was like, I can't take much more. That's the way I am. I'm like, I know you got a lot more to give, but I got a whole, I I need to slow up a little bit because I'm taking and processing a lot right now. And that's what I want to talk about today. But I think that it's important that you understand that any time that we open up the Scripture and we break this bread, that in application to us, it is absolute truth in any place that we are in life. And so when I read in Genesis back in 5 and 6 and 7, when it's talking about in the days of Noah and it's talking about uh, uh, this catastrophic worldwide flood and the destruction of all mankind save Noah and his family. I believe in it. It was absolute truth. And scientifically, here's the thing about relative truth is you can take a relative truth and you could twist it to be absolute to you when in fact it is in error. Relative truth is only relative if it's relative to you. Absolute truth stands the test of time. Jacob Jester said one time, I heard him say, he said, uh, a lie will make its way around the world three times before the truth gets its shoes laced up. (laughs) But when the truth gets its shoes on and shows up, it's the end of it. Absolute truth. And so if 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 you want to dig deep enough and you want to unearth these treasures that are scientifically provable, at least at some measure, the absolute truth is that God, he sent a flood. And it wasn't accidental either. He knew exactly how much water to release. (laughs) And he knew exactly how to save man. And then he made a way even in that big boat that he only put one door on it. And so I don't have to grasp at straws to see a type and a shadow. I am the way. I am the life. No one comes to the Father. There is no salvation outside of me. There was one way for a man and his family to be saved, and it was in obedience. Absolute truth is still the most important thing as believers we can trust in. The truth in the Scripture is important to us to see it as absolute truth. Two weeks ago, last week, I wanted to say stuff about last week too, but since y'all already said that, I'll just, last week was, it was awesome. It was a great week. Praise the Lord. But two weeks ago, Pastor talked about Abraham and got Abraham. Sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Abraham. Abram. <laughs> Abram, who became Abraham. And the fact that God chose Abraham, asked him, told him to leave his land and go to a place that I will show him in route. Just go, right? You remember this? I'm just trying to refresh all this. I want to actually deal with one, kind of one passage of Scripture and then track our way uh, on down into the New Testament. But, but this is just kind of catch up. You remember the story of Abraham. We're all familiar with it, right? God asked him to do an unthinkable thing. And Abram, in his obedience, stepped out in faith and went. And he went on a promise, right, that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. You remember these promises? I will make your, your um, inheritance, uh, your, your heritage, your lineage be more numerous than the stars. Those are bold promises, right? And then God in his faithfulness sustains Abraham to that place. Not without the fulfillment of the promise necessarily up until the place that I want to talk about in Scripture today, that covenant moment. I want to talk about the covenant moment tonight because there was a moment. There was a covenant moment where we see God step out of glory, come down and dwell 
in, in a very unique and distinct moment in history that shaped all of history from this moment on. That's the moment that I want to talk about tonight. In Genesis chapter 15. Uh, Abraham has already seen the faithfulness of God. He's already seen the, um, the strength of God played out in battle. He's seen the protection of God played out um, when his whole life could have gone awry because, his, <laughs> because he might have told a half-truth, right? It's pretty tough for, your, for your, uh, um, uh, the nations to be blessed and for you to... Uh, give birth to the nation of Israel if your wife is the king of Abimelech. <laughs> I mean, if, you're, if your wife uh, leaves you for the king of, it's just a tough moment. So, and God protects him through all of those things. And so in, in Genesis chapter 15, let's read in verse 1. We'll track our way through this. After these things, after all those things that God had already done for him, <laughs> The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Yeah, yes, and amen, for sure. God had been faithful, and he had been his shield, and he had been his reward. If you flip back to, you don't have to, I'll just turn over there real quick, because in chapter 13 and verse 2, it says, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. God had certainly been an exceedingly great reward to Abraham already at this moment in his life. But Abram said this in verse 2, Lord God, what what will you give me? Seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring and indeed one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir. But one whom will come from your own body shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look towards the heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And listen to this. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. He believed the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. That's powerful. And then God gives a, uh, it's, a, it's a, a private service announcement, a public service announcement, whatever. It's public to us. It's private to Abraham at this moment. He says this. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? This it's, it's this moment where you see Abraham caught. Abraham was on his heels. He had just said he, that the scripture testifies that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness sake. God tells him that I'm the Lord God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to bless you. And he says, hmm, but how? I believe, Lord, but how? It's one of those God I believe but help my unbelief moments. It happens. I've been there. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of earth, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And instead of just sitting Abraham down and giving him um, a reminder of how faithful that he had been to him in just the short season that they had been together and how he had been faithful to sustain him and, and to allow him to keep his wealth and to grow his wealth and to keep his family safe. I remember I was able to get a lot back for you. Remember all of those things? I, uh, instead of God sitting down and, and calmly explaining to him how he is, in fact, his shield and his exceedingly great reward, he gives him a grocery list. I know that's what I said, Ms. Judy. I'm like, okay, all right. This is what God said when he says, God, how will I know that I'll inherit it? And and here's what God said to Abram. He said, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
And he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two. Abraham cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Now, this is significant. Don't overlook what has happened here. This is very significant. Abraham asked God, how, how will I know? God gives Abraham a grocery list, but Abraham knows exactly what to do. Abraham understood covenant and cutting covenant. And today we write our names on a line on a contract or it's notarized and we're bound to that contract. The way that they cut covenant then was if I entered into agreement with you, Jace, we would take a heifer one of your heifers, as you get to sail barn, right? And we would cut that thing in half and we would lay those pieces opposite one another and we would both walk through them. And, and the gist of it is, I'm in agreement with you, you're in agreement with me, and if either one of us break our agreement with one another, may this be the result. May this be the result. Be it unto me. Be it unto me. This is bold on Abraham's part, might I say, because he's a man capable of fault, capable of error. And this is where we see God in his brilliance step in. Verse 11, and when vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And now when sun when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell on him. We see time and time and time again in Scripture when God manifests Himself in a supernatural and a tangible way, people are fear stricken. I love the Lord, and I long for the day. When I see him face to face, but I believe in that moment (laughs) that his overwhelming glory and magnificent will be more than I can bear. Even in my imputed righteousness state, even though I am sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, water baptized, full of faith, nothing that I can do can compare to his majesty and his glory. And this is this moment. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abram, certainly no. I'm going to read for just a little bit. I want to get down to a particular passage of Scripture right here, and then we'll we'll move on a little bit. It says, this is God. He said to Abram in verse 13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will serve them, and and they will afflict them for 400 years. And we know that God is... um, God is giving insight into what's going to happen to this nation that's going to come out of the womb of Abraham uh, in Egypt. He says, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. And if you all remember, when we get to Exodus, which is the next book after Genesis, maybe six weeks from now, but when we get there and you see the children of Israel come out of Egypt, it says that they spoil the Egyptians. Good. <laughs> that's not plan B either. God knew his plan A was way in effect already. In verse 15, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, but in the 14th generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And listen, look at this. This, this, may, this may, I think personally, that this may be the scripture that all of the rest of the promises in the Bible hinge on. Because no father, this, you have to understand the promises of God were to a man, to a family, to a nation, and we connect to all, if I can make my pinky get way out there, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, Gentiles, shame. How will I know that you'll bless me, God? That's Abraham's question. Give me a heifer, give me a goat, give me a ram, and here we are. Here's how I'll show you, Abram. Verse 17, it says, and it came to pass when the sun went down 
and it was dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Do you understand the significance of what just happened? There's a couple things really significant. Here's the first thing. God passed through. Here's the second thing. Abram didn't. And this is where God shows amazing grace to us. We have no responsibility outside of faith. Outside of faithful Abraham. God did it. God claimed it. God procured it. God God, uh, predestined it. God ordained it. God provided it. God fulfilled it in the person of Jesus. And all me and you have to do. God in his great grace knew that Abram could not keep the covenant. It's just a chapter or two over when he's slipping into Hagar's tent. Covenant broke. God in his mercy passes through alone. And he says, here's how you know, Abram. I'll pass through. I'll give you my word. And if I break my word, may I be like this. That takes great boldness. Fortunately, God is all-powerful and all-knowing. He's holy. He's immutable. He is without change. He's without error. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he knew in that moment because his character and his nature had already been established because he has always been and he will never change. He knew that he was a God that cannot lie. There's two things that God can't do. He can't die. He can't lie. Right? And he made a covenant. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark. And behold, there, was, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch. And it passed between the two pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Saying this to your descendants. I've given this land from the river Euphrates. All of it. And you're going to be a great nation. And you track the life of Abraham. And sure, there were some hiccups along the way, but they were not God's hiccups. They were Abram's hiccups. They were doubt or they were fleshly uh, ideas that set in and took the place of obedience. And if we're just being real honest, we find ourselves in that place. It's, it's not difficult to lose um, it's not difficult to lose sight of absolute truth sometimes. It's not difficult to disconnect from a promise because our flesh gets in the way. That's the way to say that. It's not difficult to disconnect from a promise that you know that you have, that you know you've heard with clarity because you don't see it happening your way. You don't see the time um, line working out the way that you want it to work out. My uncle says that, you know, you, you have the compound names of God, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Shalom, right? He says, I, the God that I know the most is Jehovah Nikotim. Right, because his timing is impeccable, but it's not our timing. And that was the struggle that Abraham had when he slipped into Hagar's tent. And and we see this internal struggle even begin to break out. And here's the point the pastor made last week, and I'll just remind you, and then I want to go on and talk a little bit more about his immutability. But pastor said this, and we have all heard this. You better watch out, because uh, God's got Israel's back. And and then he wants he wants to make sure that you understand that that there is a natural Israel and there is a spiritual Israel. And us Gentiles have been grafted in to the olive tree because of the person of Jesus Christ. And the only way that that could have ever happened is if God had, had cut covenant regarding this promise. The Messiah had to come out of Abraham's loins through the person of Isaac, through the person of Jacob, a deceiver. And we see this messed up genealogy that gives us great hope that we don't have to be perfect because God is. 
that we see these amazing promises just continue to unfold and unfold. And it happens all the way through the book of Genesis. It's supernatural the way that Isaac finds his wife. It's supernatural um, the way that, that Jacob manages to maintain life after the way that he crossed his brother up. It's supernatural and divine uh, pre- uh, prevention and intention that, that lands them in Egypt in a famine that almost destroys that part of the known world, right? But there come a Pharaoh that didn't know the God of Joseph. He didn't know the story. He didn't understand why all those people was hanging out in the land of Goshen. He just knew that they could make bricks without getting too much into the book of Exodus, right? But I just want to tiptoe through for a second because there is an very important thing that I want, and we're not going to go there. I just want to remind you. I want you to be thinking about this. Y'all remember a lentil with blood on it? And a Passover feast that was instituted because of that night that they celebrated every year where they sit around a table and they ate and they reminded one another and they told the story about Moses. They told a story about a nation that was birthed out of Egypt. They told a story that, that reminded them of who they are in God's eyes, that we're his chosen people. It's a powerful story. And then in Luke chapter 1, oh, yeah, let's get over here. I'm not going back to the Old Testament tonight. Angel, the Lord shows up to Mary, and what does he have to tell her? Fear not. <laughs> because when, when an angel shows up, when, when the glory shows up, <laughs> fearfulness happens to set in. He makes a promise, a declaration to a virgin that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. And I want you to read... If this is powerful, this is so good. You're going to love this. She sings a song. I think it's a song. This isn't Mary said. I think she was humming it when she did. She said in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. Listen, we're going to, we're going to read this whole thing because it's good. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She's having church, man. She is having church. Her life is about to get super difficult. She's about to have to explain why she's pregnant and never been with a man before. I mean, there's some tough days ahead of her here, okay? <laughs> uh, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation to generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. And look at this. He's immutable. He does not change. In spite of his age, he does not weaken. In spite of his age, his mind does not diminish. In spite of his age and all that he sees, and, and all of the things that he has to deal with, he is not tempted to give up his holiness or his righteousness or his perfection. He is immutable, without change. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he what? As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. She's in this moment reminiscing back to Genesis chapter 15 when God cut covenant with Abraham. And he walked through a bloody gauntlet giving mankind his word. 
that out of his seed, all of the nations would be blessed. All of the nations would be blessed. We live in a day and a time where absolute truth is questioned. God's plan for redemption is still the person of Christ Jesus. The problem with that is there are too many options <laughs> that even the church will grab a hold of. And there was a day and time, and this is, and Pastor was talking about this when Sunday morning he was talking about Pentecostalism in the early, uh, early century when it was birthed in the early 1900s. And he talked about a, a people that was sanctified and a people that were holy, that they knew and they understood God. And they preached fire from the pulpit like nobody's business. And everybody in here, you, you can remember, at least you may have heard mention of, you may have read the sermon by um, sinners in the hands of an angry God, uh, angry God. What's the brother's name? Jonathan Edwards, thank you. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, and when he is preaching the message, people just are, are uh, conviction falls, this unbelievable manifestation of conviction and supernatural uh, redemption power and evang evangelical uh, anointing flows through a room. But the context of that sermon is heavy. <laughs> when he makes the the comparison to a, a sinner being hung by a, um, a single spider's web. And he, and he talks about the holiness of God in comparison to the wrath of God. And, and here's the thing about holiness. When you talk about the modern church today, our holiness is, our holiness is relative You have to understand that your holiness cannot be compared to the person that sits next to you, but your holiness has to be compared to the God that you live for. And understand that you cannot achieve that holiness, absolutely not, but we strive for it. And if you just accept that I'm holier than the brother next to me, then your holiness is relative and it's of absolutely no significance in the kingdom of God. His holiness is immutable. He didn't change or there was no variance in his holiness. And then we see it manifested and played out in the life of Jesus. And this really threw people for a loop. Jesus messed stuff up. If you think about this, I wasn't great at math at all. And I took college algebra when I was a senior. And I ended up auditing the class because I was going to flunk big time. But I remember that first test that we took. And I don't know. Miss Harrison may have been a great teacher. Uh, she seemed to be pretty good because Anton Collusion, he was, he was this Russian guy. He was also an atheist, but he was super, really, really good at math. And so that first test, man, everybody bombed that thing, right? Like, like I'm talking, except maybe Erica might not have. Erica Clemens, she may not have either, but I did, and, and several other people, and I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, oh, man, okay, everybody's bombed this, and then I'm wishful thinking, well, if everybody has done terrible on this, you know, one or two things might happen. Number one, maybe she could just throw this thing out, or number two, maybe she can grade it on a curve, right? If not, come on, teacher, quit shaking your head at me like that. I'm just saying, if everybody in the classrooms made a 71 or below, maybe you can bump us up and help us out, right? The problem with that was when I got over and asked Anton how he did, he'd like, I made 100. It was at that moment that everybody in the class stood up and gave him a standing ovation. No. It was at that moment hatred filled my heart for him. That's what you see in the life of Jesus. I understand that's a stupid analogy, but it is. Because you have this, this, um, 
this system of rules and regulation, these laws and dictates that people were trying to live by to uh, produce a holiness or righteousness in their life, and it was a false sense of security, and then the Messiah shows up, and he lives this thing out perfectly and messes your whole curve up. But he couldn't, he couldn't diminish or digress because he was God in the flesh. And for him to have done that, for him to have lowered himself to a relative holiness in comparison to who was next to him, he had to be true to who he was. I am God and I change not. I am holy. Be ye holy for I am holy. And he is not holy in the context that we think of holiness. He is holy in the fact that he has never made a mistake. He has never had an ill intention or a poor thought. He has never made a mistake in his views of somebody who is lesser than him. He is absolutely holy. His holiness is immutable. And when Jonathan Edwards talks about that kind of holiness, it messes stuff up in a room. He says not only is he holy, but he's omnipotent. And his omnipotence is immutable. His power has never changed. And that is not an easy thing to think about when you're concerning yourself in regards to his holiness and to know that the wages of sin is death. And I am absolutely and 100% in agreement with anybody that would tell you that God is love and that he's not angry at me. He's not. Because I have stepped out of darkness into light. All of my faith, all of my hope, even, even, and I am, I I was a sinner. I'm with pastor. I was a sinner. I sin. Also live in a life of repentance. Because I'm flesh. But I serve a God who is perfect. And because of his imputed righteousness unto me, I am perfect in his eyes. And I happen to know this. I don't believe in universalism for a second. And I'm not busting the guy's chops. If The Shack is your favorite book in the world, whatever. But you might should read about the guy that wrote it before you fall in love with God as as a jazz, as a black jazz musician, a female black jazz musician. It's a gross misrepresentation of who God is. And I understand that God is everything that you need him to be. But he is all man all the time. And he can play jazz, but he don't because jazz is stupid. <laughs> Just play the right notes, man. <laughs> okay? Y'all get me off track. I'm just saying this. I don't believe in universalism. I believe that there is a wrath stored up unto a day of wrath. And when the fullness of time comes and there will be men that stand before a holy God who is powerful enough to declare guilty. Eternal damnation. And not only can he um, declare that, He can enforce it. And he absolutely will because his omnipotence is immutable. His power doesn't change. I remember in scripture he asked the brother, has my armed wax short? Have I gone deaf? I can do anything. And if that's not enough, you have to wrestle with the fact that he's omniscient. (laughs) He knows what he's doing. I said tonight, there's not a plan B. There doesn't need to be. Now, mine and your eyes, yeah, absolutely. We think that there needs to be a plan B, and a lot of times in prayer, we'll go in with plan A, B, C, D. We'll try to inform the Lord that maybe, you know, I got ideas. If you'll just listen, I got ideas, and maybe you haven't thought of any of these things. Maybe it'll adjust the way that you are responding to my situation, Lord. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't happen like that. 
He's omniscient, right? Like I can remember playing basketball. We go in and we have a game plan. Football is the same way, probably even more so than football because you've watched game film. I never in my life watched any basketball game film. So I'll use football as uh, um, for comparison. I've also never played any football. But for those of you who did, you'll be able to make uh, everybody will understand what I'm saying. You go into a game, you have watched the opposing team, you have developed a game plan, you went into that game, tried to implement that, only to realize that your game plan was terrible. And then you go into the locker room and, and, and you rearrange and, and modify everything to go out and try to uh, implement plan B. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but that is not the way that things work with God. He is omniscient. There is nothing that he doesn't know. Do I believe prayer changes things? Absolutely. In my life, I believe that God's already at tomorrow. I, I'll just, I'm, 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 I'm going to confess. This is not like a... Uh, Confess your false moments. I'm just going to tell you that this morning, without being too transparent, because everybody in this room, I have a dear, dear friend who called me this morning before 8 o'clock to tell me that something that has been going on in his life for a couple of months that I thought, my God, this is a miracle from the Lord. Praise the Lord. He is orchestrating this thing all the way down. I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. And he called me this morning. He said, it has all Falling apart today. He said, I got to call it 7.30 this morning. This perfect plan, this, this, uh, this thing that is going to sustain me, this thing that is going to provide for my family, this, this uh, uh, seemingly answer to prayers has all at once slid out from under me. Thank the Lord that I have been reading about the covenant promises of God. And his omniscience being immutable. Because I was caught off guard this morning. But God wasn't. And he's going to be faithful. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he can be faithful in those moments when we do not know what's going on. He's going to be faithful in those moments when everything around us has gone to hell in a handbasket. He's going to be faithful when we don't see the promise, the fruition of it. He's going to be faithful when that, when that promise is so far out of reach that the womb is dead. There is no hope for this. God, you don't understand. You have made a promise that you cannot keep because we're way too old for that. You said tonight that, um, I want to look at this, Hebrews chapter 6. Turn over here real quick with me. You said tonight you're going to pray. You're going to pray for more of the Holy Spirit. You're going to pray and believe. You're going to wait. You said, that's the terminology. You said you, should, you may have to wait for it, but you're going to be diligent. Look what the Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could not swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Let's talk about that for just a second. No, I'm going to read down a little bit and then I'm going to come back. Saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And it says this, and so after he had patiently endured. After he had patiently endured, he received the promise. There is something to be said about patient endurance. It's a terrible thing to think about. To have to wait on something in a microwave generation. That's a book. It should be. Crockpot God in our microwave generation. If you write it, I want the title recognition. That's all. None of the proceeds. I just want my name somewhere in the book. So after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And this is why God walked through that gauntlet of halved animals alone. So he could swear by himself. I'm not basing this covenant on whether or not you can keep it, Abraham. I'm swearing by myself. The Lord had no Bible to put his hand on. 
He didn't cross his heart, hope to die, sting a needle in his eye. My daughter made me pinky promise all the time. I have my hand, my, I'm crossed like this. I pinky promise. <laughs> the Lord didn't have his fingers crossed. There was no one greater than himself. There was no one greater than the absolute truth to swear by. And so he swore by himself. And that is enough. And every, listen to me, every promise that is connected to that moment, and I believe that it's every promise that belongs to the church, finds its root in that night. When the glory fell and darkness covered the earth, and he walked through there, a smoking oven and a burning torch. Every promise is connected to that. And if I can connect to the promise because God swore by himself that he would fulfill those promises, if I can patiently endure, then I can obtain the promise. For men indeed swear by, this is verse 16, Hebrews chapter 6. For men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all disputes. They, I mean, you'll sign a contract. I'll be good with that. But even more so than that, thus God determining to show a more abundantly, show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel. Confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, He cannot lie. We might have strong consolation. Ah. <laughs> uh, you need some comfort. You need some consolation about a promise that you're waiting on. God swore on that promise by himself. Rest assured. Yes. Praise the Lord. Patiently enduring and obtaining a promise. Thank the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Listen to this. This hope. This hope we have as an assurance of the soul. Both sure and steadfast and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a couple more interesting things that I want to talk about. This is just food for thought. Two, two different things. So when you're tracing through all the promises of God, you have to realize that you have to land at the cross. I think that when you're talking about, there's a couple of times in Scripture where God in his glory shows up and a darkness We've seen it in Genesis chapter 15. You'll see it again in Exodus when he comes down on Mount Sinai. Darkness fills this place. There's two things that God can't do. He can't lie. He can't die. God's not going to die. Jesus in the flesh died, but I believe in that moment the spirit never did. Trust me. And here's what I believe happened on that day. I believe that when the scripture tells us of the crucifixion or the death account, it says that the sky turned black, that it turned dark. I believe that that was just the spirit of God showing up. I mean, not showing up, leaving. This fleshly body can no longer contain it because it's dead, but I'm still here. Had God died in that moment, so would Pilate. So would Caiaphas. So would Mary and John. The cross would have evaporated. Golgotha. The hill would have vaporized. All that exists would cease to exist if God dies. God cannot die. He will not die. Every promise that he has spoken to us is absolutely true. And when everything around us falls apart and fails, if you look in the end of, we won't turn there, Second Timothy, the very last chapter, he's writing this. Uh, it's kind of a final discourse, right? He says, I finished the race. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. He says, come quickly to me. He says, I'm alone. I'm cold, bring, bring my jacket. Demas has left me. He's departed because the love of this world has consumed him and he's left me. You just see in Colossians where he says, Luke and, and Demas send you greeting. Man, they're working for the Lord. Demas has jumped ship and he's left. He's broken promise. Paul has stood alone 
And that's what he said. He said, in my first defense, he said, I was all alone. Very next verse. But God stood with me. There was never a moment in Abraham's doubt where God wasn't standing with him because he is not a God that breaks promise. There was never a moment throughout the kings, the kingdoms, throughout all of the wars that the people of God stood alone because God stood with him. There was never a moment when Jesus was alone because God stood with him. There was never a moment in all of Paul's missionary journeys where he was ever alone. He may have been abandoned by fleshly friends and, and journeymen, but there was never a moment. When he was alone. And because God is immutable and he is a covenant-keeping God, there will never be a moment in your life, no matter where you find yourself, where you are alone. Because God will stand with you. Bishop E.W. Jackson. Anybody listen to AFR? Bishop E.W. Jackson. I don't really like it. He just He's in everybody's face, right? But at the end of it, he says this every time. He says, remember... We will not be defeated if we do not quit because God is on our side. I'm like, right on. That's exactly right. We cannot be defeated if we will not quit because God is on our side. If we could be reminded of that in the darkest moments of our lives, we're holding on to a promise by a thread. Know that God is immutably powerful. He is immutably holy. He is immutably righteous. And because of the cross of Calvary and, and my faith in that and this imputed righteousness and justification that I walk in and this faith that I have, then all of the promises of God belong to me just like they did Abraham and Abraham's seed and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is the God of Shane. He's the God of Barrett, the God of Janice, the God of Jace, the God fill in your name. That is the God that we serve. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Change your clocks back. Saturday. Don't show up here at 1130. Trying to break bread with me, man, because I'm going to be here an hour before that, all right? Praise the Lord. Men's breakfast. Tomorrow you have to be a man. That's the only qualification. Have to be a man. Spring forward. That is the terminology that you want. Yes, you don't spring forward. You're going to be here late. I'm just telling you. Uh, thank the Lord. Amen. Right there. Yes. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your, for your faithfulness. God, for your strength and for your power. God, we magnify you today. We exalt you. We stand on the promises that we see in your word. And, Father, we, we, uh, we, we make a, a commitment, Father, to dig deeper, to unearth the truths, the promises, God, that we may have missed. God, we want to align ourselves with absolute truth so that we can trust in you to fulfill those promises. God, if we can walk away here tonight, strengthened by a belief that you're a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, then I believe that it will transform the way that we live our lives as believers. I really do. You've challenged me in the past couple of weeks. Father, challenge our church family to walk in the fullness of who you've called us to be because of who you are. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.